Chapter Twenty Seven, Part Nine of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Seven, The Wars of Italy, Louis the Twelfth. 1498-1515, Part 9. Louis the Twelfth's private life also contributed to win for him, we will not say the respect and admiration, but the goodwill of the public. He was not, like Louis the Ninth, a model of austerity and sanctity, but after the licentious court of Charles the Seventh, the coarse habits of Louis the Eleventh, and the easy morals of Charles the Eighth, the French public was not exacting. Louis the Twelfth was thrice married, his first wife, Joan, daughter of Louis the Eleventh, was an excellent and worthy princess, but ugly, ungraceful, and humpbacked. He had been almost forced to marry her, and he had no child by her. On ascending the throne, he begged Pope Alexander the Sixth to annul his marriage. The negotiation was anything but honorable, either to the king or to the pope, and the pope granted his bull in consideration of the favors shown to his unworthy son, Caesar Borgia, by the king. Joan alone behaved with a virtuous as well as modest pride, and ended her life in sanctity within a convent at Bourges, being wholly devoted to pious works, regarded by the people as a saint, spoken of by bold preachers as a martyr, and still the true and legitimate Queen of France, and treated at a distance with profound respect by the king who had put her away. Louis married, in 1499, his predecessor's widow, Anne, Duchess of Brittany, Twenty-three years of age, short, pretty, a little lame, witty, able, and firm. It was on both sides a marriage of policy, though romantic tales have been mixed up with it. It was a suitable and honorable royal arrangement, without any lively affection on one side or the other, but with mutual esteem and regard. As queen, Anne was haughty, imperious, sharp-tempered, and too much inclined to mix in intrigues and negotiations at Rome and Madrid, sometimes without regard for the king's policy. But she kept up her court with spirit and dignity, being respected by her ladies, whom she treated well, and favorably regarded by the public, who were well disposed towards her for having given Brittany to France. Some courtiers showed their astonishment that the king should so patiently bear with a character so far from agreeable. But one must surely put up with something from a woman, said Louis, when she loves her honor and her husband. After a union of fifteen years, Anne of Brittany died on the ninth of January, 1514, at the castle of Blois, nearly thirty-seven years old. Louis was then fifty-two. He seemed very much to regret his wife, but some few months after her death, another marriage of policy was put, on his behalf, in course of negotiation. It was in connection with Princess Mary of England, sister of Henry the Eighth with whom it was very important for Louis the Twelfth and for France to be once more at peace and on good terms. The Duc de Longueville, made prisoner by the English at the Battle of Guingate, had, by his agreeable wit and his easy, chivalrous grace, won Henry the Eighth's favor in London, and he perceived that the prince, discontented with his allies, the Emperor of Germany and the King of Spain, was disposed to make peace with the King of France. A few months, probably only a few weeks, after Anne of Brittany's death, de Longueville, no doubt with Louis the Twelfth's privity, 
suggested to Henry VIII the idea of a marriage between his young sister and the King of France. Henry liked to do sudden and striking things. He gladly seized the opportunity of avenging himself upon his two allies, who, in fact, had not been very faithful to him, and he welcomed de Longueville's idea. Mary was sixteen, pretty, already betrothed to Archduke Charles of Austria, and further passionately smitten with Charles Brandon, the favourite of Henry the Eighth, who had made him Duke of Suffolk, and, according to English historians, the handsomest nobleman in England. These two difficulties were surmounted. Mary herself formally declared her intention of breaking a promise of marriage which had been made during her minority, and which Emperor Maximilian had shown himself in no hurry to get fulfilled, and Louis the Twelfth formally demanded her hand. Three treaties were concluded on the 7th of August, 1514, between the kings of France and England, in order to regulate the conditions of their political and matrimonial alliance. On the 13th of August, the Duc de Longueville, in his sovereign's name, espoused the Princess Mary at Greenwich, and she, escorted to France by brilliant embassy, arrived on the 8th of October at Abbeville, where Louis the Twelfth was awaiting her. Three days afterwards the marriage was solemnized there in state, and Louis, who had suffered from gout during the ceremony, carried off his young queen to Paris, after having had her crowned at Saint-Denis. Mary Tudor had given up the German prince, who was destined to become Charles V, but not the handsome English nobleman she loved. The Duke of Suffolk went to France to see her after her marriage, and in her train she had as maid of honour a young girl, a beauty as well, who was one day to be Queen of England, Anne Boleyn. Less than three months after this marriage, on the 1st of January, 1515, the death-bell men were traversing the streets of Paris, ringing their bells and crying, The good King Louis, father of the people, is dead. Louis the Twelfth, in fact, had died that very day, at midnight, from an attack of gout and a rapid decline. He had no great need to be married, for many reasons, says the loyal servitor of Bayard, and he likewise had no great desire that way, but because he found himself on every side at war, which he could not maintain without pressing very hard upon his people, he behaved like the pelican. After that Queen Mary had made her entry, which was mighty triumphant, into Paris, and that there had taken place many jousts and tourneys, which lasted more than six weeks, the good king, because of his wife, changed all his manner of living. He had been wont to dine at eight, and he now dined at midday. He had been wont to go to bed at six in the evening, and he often now went to bed at midnight. He fell ill at the end of December, from the which illness naught could save him. He was, whilst he lived, a good prince, wise and virtuous, who maintained his people in peace, without pressing hard upon them in any way, save by constraint. He had in his time much of good and of evil, whereby he got ample knowledge of the world. He obtained many victories over his enemies, but towards the end of his days fortune gave him a little turn of her frowning face. He was born to his grave at Saint-Denis amongst his good predecessors, with great weeping and wailing, and to the great regret of his subjects. He was a gentle prince, says Robert de Lamarck, Lord of Florange, both in war and otherwise, and in all matters wherein he was required to take part. It was a pity when this malady of gout attacked him, for he was not an old man. To the last of his days Louis the Twelfth was animated by earnest sympathy and active solicitude for his people. It cost him a great deal to make with the King of England the treaties of August the seventh, fifteen fourteen, to cede Tournay to the English, and to agree to the payment to them of a hundred thousand crowns a year for ten years. He did it to restore peace to France, 
attacked on her own soil, and feeling her prosperity threatened. For the same reason he negotiated with Pope Leo X, Emperor Maximilian, and Ferdinand the Catholic, and he had very nearly attained the same end by entering once more upon pacific relations with them, when death came and struck him down at the age of fifty-three. He died sorrowing over the concessions he had made from a patriotic sense of duty as much as from necessity, and full of disquietude about the future. He felt a sincere affection for Francis de Valois, Count of Angoulême, his son-in-law and successor. The marriage between his daughter Claude and that prince had been the chief and most difficult affair connected with his domestic life, and it was only after the death of the queen, Anne of Brittany, that he had it proclaimed and celebrated. The bravery, the brilliant parts, the amiable character, and the easy grace of Francis I delighted him, but he dreaded his presumptuous inexperience, his reckless levity, and his ruinous extravagance. And in his anxiety as a king and father he said, We are laboring in vain. This big boy will spoil everything for us. End of chapter 27 End of volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot Translated by Robert Black